I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Friday Golf Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about how to build a career in golf architecture, or at least we're talking about how one person accomplished that feat. My guest is Dan Hickson. He's a Portland, Oregon-based golf architect who's designed a number of courses in Oregon and Washington, including Bandon Crossings, Wine Valley, the Reversible Course at Sylvie's Valley Ranch, and the brand new Bar Run in Roseburg, Oregon. Dan's career has really run the gamut from low-budget renovations to ambitious and boundary-pushing new builds, and while he's somewhat under the radar nationally, he is very well-established and well-respected in the Pacific Northwest. I've wanted to have him on the podcast for a while, and we finally found a good time when he was in town and visiting his in-progress renovation at the Lake Oswego Municipal Golf Course. So we'll open up by talking about that project, and then we'll dig into the way that Dan has built up his career from being a club pro at the Columbia Edgewater Country Club to a very prolific golf course designer. I think he's taken a really interesting path, and it probably has some lessons in it for aspiring architects. All right, let's get to it. Here is Dan Hickson. All right. So Dan Hickson, we were just out at the Lake Oswego Municipal Course a few minutes ago, walking around that project that you're doing. Uh, You've just finished basically renovating it, doing an ambitious renovation out there. It's grassed in, but hasn't opened yet. There are some more things to do on the site. So could you just like take me through that project? What did you do there? Well, it was an 18-hole par-3 course, um, very simple, very rudimentary design, and the city of Lake Oswego wanted to build a park and, or excuse me, a recreation center, an aquatic center, and so that took away the first three holes, and uh, we then had to just basically start from scratch, and a lot of it was taken out trees and turned it into a nine-hole course with three par-4s, fairly short, but... Uh, really opened up the site mostly with just tree removal of kind of poor species and, and poor plantings. Okay. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of trees came out there. It was pretty choked, uh, before for sure. I've, (laughs) I've played it before and, and it's, it's much more open now, but a, a big part of the move was going from 18 par threes to what you have now. So, you know, nine holes, what's the, what's the nature of the course now? Well, the property has some tilt to it. It has a kind of a wetland down on the bottom. And the majority of the holes on the original course were parallel to each other, just back and forth, like seven in a row. And on each side, uh, not just seven, you know, holes two through nine or anything. Um, And so we were able to open up the gaps between them and uh, basically build one hole per where the old ones were. And so again, to gain some width, uh, they had some incredibly narrow shots between the trees before 
And, but really it was part of it was to build a, you know, regulation type greens, regulation type teas, you know, built with a California spec for the greens and, you know, capped teas and much bigger, you know, it was a typical Muni where, you know, by May 1st, there was no grass left on the teas for the whole season. And so we were able to really expand that part and, uh, and hopefully the maintenance of it is, uh, kind of f- follows it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you have some interesting greens out there too. I think that's a, a big deal here, right? The, the previous course had these sort of circular push-up greens, a little bit domed. Maybe they weren't designed that way. They just kind of ended up that way. And it was, it was fairly repetitive what was going on. Now you have some creative shapes out there, some fun little shots. You know, what, what were some of the things that you, you did yeah. with the greens? Um, well, you know, it's an introduction course for a lot of people. A lot of kids, it'll be their first round of golf. You know, parents and grandparents can t- can take children out there and play the first time and, and beginners of every age. And so I thought, you know, as an introduction course that they should have some exciting stuff. So we build a punch bowl green. We have kind of a partial redan, a little runaway downhill green on a par three. Um, we have a couple swales that run through the greens, but really just to, to make it more exciting golf. And, uh, uh, I use the analogy. It wasn't my idea. Somebody else said this. I couldn't tell you who, but if you were introducing somebody to the world of coffee, you wouldn't take them to the service station to get it out of a, you know, a little old pot that's been sitting on the burner for seven hours. You take them to a nice coffee shop. And I feel to introduce people into golf that they should have a little bit of creativity and imagination to see that a green, you know, isn't just flat or a dome and, you know, you got to aim to the left to make it break in and stuff like that. And so uh, I kind of think that's what we did pretty well. And, and, uh, you know, still kept it very playable and safe for, for higher handicappers, but, uh, a little bit of excitement that you may see on a more of a major style course, not a major tournament course, but, uh, you know, a more classic country club or something. I feel like I've heard the coffee analogy from Andy Johnson before. Could have been but, from there. Yeah, maybe from, or maybe he heard it from the same person you did, but it definitely holds here where, yeah, yeah this is the first course that a lot of people will play. And so why not make it as compelling yeah. as possible? Why, why does it have to be a, a dumbed down or mundane right. version right. of the game? If it, if it's really fun, then presumably you're more likely to appeal yeah, to people exactly. right away. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So, you know, one, one big aspect of this project, as I mentioned before, was the, the reduction of the footprint of the golf course going from 18 to nine holes. Yep. Right. This is something that a lot of golfers might have a problem with that local golfers will, will, you know, usually object to projects like this. What do you think are some of the cons as well as some of the potential pros of municipalities doing this kind of thing with their golf courses where they're reducing the footprint, reducing the number of holes, but trying to improve the quality of the golf. Yeah. It's there's, there is a lot of pros and cons to that. And the, one of the, the quick con to get it out of the way was, uh, some of the locals were worried that it would be too busy because they don't have front and back tee times on certain days of the week. And so everybody's just got to go off on 10 and, and that's a, that's true. But the city of Lake Oswego, when they made the decision to build the rec center, they looked at everything kind of more of a community aspect of it and trying to, um, offer more on that site than just golf. And so they're building this beautiful aquatic center and all the rec facilities. And so it really becomes a hub for this community, um, that 
is a real pro to that is giving up part of this golf course, um, for the good of the whole. And, you know, I said, Hey, I'll, it's going to be a, I live in the same city and I'll never put my toe in that swimming pool, but I'm glad it's here because there's a real shortage for this, for this area for swimming and for the high school kids and, and younger as well as adults. So that's really neat in the community aspect of it. But as far as the golf course goes, you know, the other one was really, you just basically teed off, you hit it in the trees, you chipped out and then you hit it up to the green. And if you're not very good, you hit it in the trees again and you chipped out. So now we have, you know, 30 yard to 40 yard wide, fair, well, not 40, 30 yard wide fairways on the, on the par fours, as well as some space around the greens and stuff with a lot of short grass around it where people can putt and bump the ball up onto the green and stuff. And so the real cons is it's what I like to think of. I mean, golf is golf, but this is kind of more like real golf mm-hmm. in the sense that there's some room that you're not just hitting a tree every time and playing off the roots and the dirt underneath all the trees. So, yeah, I'm not sure if I explained your answered your question very well, but well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, you're saying that the, you know, one of the cons would be, of course you can't fit as many people on a nine hole course as you could for right. an 18 hole course, but obviously have elevated the quality of the golf and also offered some space for the rest of the community right. to use and to come on to a property near a golf course and be in the presence of the game, but also share space with it. Right. You know, this is a discussion that a lot of communities are having. Like, should we share the golf courses in that we have in this way? Right. And it feels like in this situation, it was a, a, a plus for the community, but that's yeah. an emotional decision for a lot of places. Like right. we're going to chop off part of this golf course and, give it over to another activity, like it's tough to do, but in a lot of cases it allows you to do something better with the golf course that remains. Right. And I I think, you know, I failed to mention it before we expanded the driving range greatly, which is, has been popular in the past, but we've added 50 yards and better netting for safety as well as build a, they used to have two very small, like maybe 2000 square foot each putting greens that again, were just kind of domes and you'd only have a two or three cups on each one. And we built a, a little over 10,000 square foot putting green that happens to be at part of the facility by the swimming pools where I could easily see families coming, putting, the kids go swim, hang out. There's, it, it'll really, it'll really serve the community in that sense. And that putting green can be a hangout as well as the driving range, which you know, I mean, I love that part of golf when you just go out to the course and you're not quite sure what you're going to do, but you're going to be immersed in golf. So, all right. So that's the Lake Oswego municipal course. This is one of your many kind of recent slash ongoing projects. And and we're going to get to a lot of the interesting stuff that you're doing, which is mostly around the Pacific Northwest. But you've also had, I mean, to me, one of the most interesting careers in golf architecture because you didn't take the ordinary path into the profession. There have been a lot of golf architects, obviously, who, ha- who had a competitive background, which which you have, but not many of them did exactly what you did to break into this career. And so I want to rewind a little bit and maybe go back farther than that decision that you made to enter the profession back to your childhood. Your dad was in golf uh, as well, I believe. Yeah. And so, you know, you were around golf as a kid. At what point did you 
noticed that golf architecture was a thing and become interested in in that side of the game yeah it's, um youngest child with i have three older siblings and my dad was a golf pro he's passed but uh i also have an older brother that is a golf pro doug and uh, my other two siblings my sister and other brother they probably love golf more than the rest of us in the family did but anyway uh when i was seven years old my dad took me out to eugene country club which was being remodeled by um Robert Trent Jones senior and that golf course was being reversed. And at that point, I mean, I had already drawn a few courses, just like the little, the little stick figure courses on the back of a scorecard. And when I saw this construction and there was dozers and excavators and dad was kind of pointing it out, I told him that day that that's what I wanted to do. Once I discovered, I kind of just thought golf courses were there as a seven-year-old, you know, we played it, dad worked at a golf course, we'd walk around and, and, uh, but you know, I was captivated right there at that age. And I told him that, and fortunately I wasn't a great student or anything. And so I, I wasn't smart enough to ever get a different goal. And, uh, eventually, you know, 30 years later, I, I made the change to it, but it was, it was just, I can remember seeing that golf course today and that point and him explaining that they were rebuilding it and that somebody drew it and told him how to build it. And, and, uh, that's what I wanted to do. And so I started drawing and thinking about it right from then and just looking at courses that, oh yeah. And sort of self-taught just really from that one little moment in time. Mm. So Eugene country club was a Chandler Egan course, right? Chandler Egan, we might mention a good bit in this conversation. He's yeah. a, a golden age architect who worked a great deal in the Pacific Northwest, lived in Medford, Oregon yep. uh, for a long time and worked with many of the courses and clubs in this area. Had worked with Alistair McKenzie as well on the famous Pebble Beach uh, renovation in the late 20s. But he is a, a big presence in this area. He was the original architect at Eugene Country Club. Robert Trent Jones Sr. came in when you were a kid made some changes, including reversing a lot of the holes and, every and hole. things like that. Is that what was every hole reversed every hole? That's, yeah. that's so interesting. Yeah. The first tee became the 18th green and vice versa all the way through. Oh my God. So did you, did you, do you remember noticing that aspect of the renovation? Like some of the details of what he was doing? Like, oh my God, there's this guy coming in and he's reversing the golf course. I didn't know well, that you could do that. Yeah. For sure. But I mean, obviously being that young, I'm not sure if I was comprehending everything, but I do remember for many years after that, when, when dad said that to me, that they were reversing it, I'd never played the course, I think as an Egan course, even though my grandparents were members there. Um, but when he was saying they were reversing it is my train of my thoughts were when we'd play other courses, like we'd go down to our course in Cottage Grove and I would look at every hole backwards going, would this hole be better going the other way? Which, you know, ultimately if you jot forward Sylvie's Valley Ranch, I build a reversible course. But so many years of playing golf, I would just do that. You know, if you're putting out and I'm waiting for you to put the flag in, I'm looking back up the fairway thinking, would this be a better hole if it went the other way? And would the rest of the course be better if it went the other way, not just this hole? And surprisingly, it's amazing how many projects, remodels and stuff that I do that I propose reversing holes that, you know, these two are right next to each other and they'd be better the opposite direction for one reason or another. And so I think that 
subconsciously carried into the idea of Sylvie's Valley Ranch, which um, actually Wine Valley I'd proposed to be reversible before that, but the developers at the time thought I was crazy, which they probably weren't wrong. But uh, um, so yeah, it was again back to that one little half hour of time or whatever it was back in in the late sixties that uh, I made that decision. So, huh? All right. So, where did you play early on in your competitive career? What what did that look like? Yeah, I uh, I played at Oregon State on the golf team there for a couple of years. I played junior college before that and played basketball as well. And then uh, immediately out of school, I turned pro and went to Australia, qualified for the Australian tour. And uh, that was in the Greg Norman years. This was in the mid 80s. Um, Greg Norman was playing. He was flying in a helicopter and four of us would, you know, jump in a very small compact car and drive to the course and he would fly in on a helicopter. (laughs) And uh, but got to play quite, I think I played seven Alistair McKenzie courses there. And I, somewhere I still have those drawings. I saw them three or four years ago that I would make sketches at night of his holes. Um, Some playing, of the sand belt courses. Yeah. We played yeah. Royal Melbourne. We played the composite course there. I played uh, Titarangi and in, in uh, Auckland, New Zealand. We played Royal Adelaide and uh, Metropolitan and Yara Yara and a whole bunch of them. A lot of them were side, the, the tour didn't play on them, but we would, we would sneak off on a Monday and try to play a bunch of those. And so, huh. um, great stuff. You know, I probably should have focused more on my game than the courses, but I was just fascinated with that end of it. And then I took a year off or a couple of years off, worked as a club pro and went back out and played the mini tours, played the TPS tour, which was the, uh, one or two years before the Ben Hogan tour started, which it was, it was not under the PGA in those days. And it was really through Texas, Florida, up to North Carolina and in the Southeast mainly and uh, moderate success. Tried the tour one time, made it through stage one, lost in a playoff stage two to get to the finals and, and uh, didn't really like the travel and, and uh, you know, it certainly didn't play as well as I had hoped to and uh, took a club pro job and, and then, uh, so played regional events for another 10 or 12 years and really enjoyed that. But, you know, fifth place in the Oregon open didn't have that big a charm to me anymore, you know? So, so you kind of settled into the life as a club pro. Were you at Columbia Edgewater right away or, or is that just kind of where you ended up? Um, well, I'd worked, uh, in my, in my years off between Australia and going on the mini tours, um, I worked at a place called Forest Hills here in town. Great course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. West, in, west of Portland. Yeah. Cornelius. Yep. yep. Yeah. You know, this is a course that I often recommend to people. I think it is one of the best public courses in the area. And I think probably the best, in my opinion, affordable public course. Yeah. It's a, it's a uh, Billy Bell junior and senior yep. collaboration. And it's on a really wonderful piece of land. It's, it's, a lovely yep. golf course. The yeah. owner at the time, his sons, he had twins boys and one of them now runs it that when I knew them, they, these, these boys were three or four years old and you know, now they're young adult men and with families and everything. And I think I'm going to go look at it again. We've been talking a little bit about making a few changes out there. So I worked there. And then, uh, when I came back from trying the tour school, I, I went to work right immediately at Columbia Edgewater. And after about a year and a half, the head professional Jerry Molds left to Pumpkin Ridge and I took over as intern and interim. And then eventually they gave me the head job. And so I stayed there for, I think all told 11 years, nine as the head pro. 
Okay, so this is a pretty plum job for yeah. a, a club pro. This is one that a lot of pros would like to have. It's one of the great Portland area golf clubs. There's Columbia Edgewater. There's Waverly. There's Portland Golf Club. As far as I'm concerned, those are kind of the top clubs in the city. And so what made you think while you were <laughs> working this job that I'd like to go into golf architecture? Well, I, you know, again, going way back, it had always been there and it, it would never go away. And, um, you know, unfortunately I went through a divorce at that point, which kind of gave me, you know, a chance to sort of start over again. We didn't have children. And that was a big part of it where I don't think I would take the risk of starting a career that I had zero experience and probably going to make zero dollars for a year or two. Um, you know, if I, if I was in that relationship and, uh, so that was a big part of it. The PGA also allowed a new category so I could, I could still play in tournaments and teach if I wanted to those early years and, and become, and I'm still a PGA member. I'm technically still a golf pro. I'm an A16 and, uh, um, but really it was, you know, just that kind of deep burning desire to try to do it. And I always, I always felt confident in myself from the artistic and golf side of it. You know, there's a lot of the other stuff I didn't know going in, but I figured, you know, I'd figure it out. <laughs> you know, I felt smart enough and creative enough and resourceful enough that if I didn't know the answer to something, I could find out pretty quick. What were some of the first jobs that you got? Well, like, how did um, you break into the, how did well, you start building your client base basically yeah, from, from um, nothing? So an old teammate of mine at Oregon State, Scott Larson, who is now the superintendent in Emerald Valley, which is a one of my first projects here, he had a construction company at the time. And um, so I was going to go work for him when he was building a golf course here in town. And uh, that got delayed from permits a little bit. And so I never really went to work for him. And he, in the meantime, had uh, we got hired to do a design build, um, golf course down in Sparks, Nevada. It never happened. We got paid for the design. And so really my first project was to, to design a full 18 hole course. And I had a whole bunch of, uh, topo maps and it was going to be a housing development course. It never got built. Um, but I went down there three or four times and walked the site and it had been kind of staked out the property lines and stuff. And so I did a full set of plans. I really just used other plans from various jobs that we, that Scott had collected. And so I kind of just would look at these other plans and figure out what I wanted to do. I knew the distances and the scale and, and even design features, you know, shapes of greens and slopes and stuff that was pretty easy for me, but really putting it all together. But, and I didn't have a real rush. I mean, it probably took me, Oh, I don't know, three to four months to do it. And, you know, just kind of working on it every day. And in the meantime, um, Scott occasionally would get clients, customers, courses basically that says, Hey, you know, we want to redo some bunkers and a green or two. Can you do it yourself? And he says, no, I got a guy that will design it for you and we'll just come and do it together. So truly, uh, we sort of started this design build con uh, project or uh, company. Unfortunately for him, um, things turned for his company ended up shutting it down and now he's back to a superintendent and we still talk semi-regularly and, uh, great guy, but he really got me started. And, um, just a few small projects here and there. I mean, technically the first one that broke ground was at the resort at the mountain here up on Mount hood, a 
golf course there. We rebuilt two greens and then I did a few tees at another course down at Mallard Creek and another, some down in Medford and Columbia Edgewater really helped where I work. Cause, um, with, a with another former architect slash golf pro bunny Mason, we decided to build a par three course in a short game area. And so I ended up becoming the co-designer of that and, and we built it. And so that was really big. So now people at other country clubs could come over and see what I could do. And that really sprung a whole bunch of other stuff, a lot of short game areas right away. And, and, uh, um, and then really kind of moving along, you know, various kind of smaller clubs at first. And then Portland golf club hired me to do their short game area, which was huge because Portland is truly one of the top clubs, former Ryder cup course, PGA of America or PGA championship and great history of USGA events. And they hired me and that sort of, again, opened a lot more doors that these other clubs thought, Hey, if Portland hires them, we can hire them. And, uh, yeah. And so it just kind of kept rolling. And last year we did a very big remodel at Portland golf club, biggest one I've done to date until this year and next year and the next year it looks like. So full circle. Yeah. So you kind of became the regional architect here in the Pacific Northwest, especially in Oregon, your work is sort of all over the place in those early days, like before you got your first big new build gig, which we'll certainly talk about, but in those early days, what was the, the learning curve like for you? Like, what did you, aside from drawing plans and things like that, which you talked about for your first job, when you're out building stuff, what kind of skill set did you have to develop in order to, to really like be a golf architect and not be a golf pro who was designing stuff? Well, that's interesting you say that because I really focused on this kind of sounds funny, but I really focused on customer service. And I mean, I, like I said, I kind of knew the golf and I could talk golf with anybody. I, I felt comfortable talking about any golf course with you name it. I would be okay in that conversation. I never stumbled for what to think about a golf course. And if I disagreed with something, I usually could come up immediately why I didn't like it. And if, and if somebody really liked it and I didn't like it, I could get a pretty good argument against that. But really I focused on, I'd been around a few architects and I won't name names, but they didn't really treat the customer very well. The client, the board of directors, the greens committees, they were kind of rude to them. And I'd worked in that business being a, being a club pro. I'd gone through hundreds of board of director meetings and greens committee meetings. And, you know, I kind of knew what country club type people or golfers in general wanted and, right. and they, they want good customer service. And yeah. so and, and I, successful club pros are really good at that. They're great. People. Like they're, they're great. They're PR diplomats. They're yeah. like, if you, yeah, if you meet the most successful club pros in the business, they're all, all good of people. them are really good people. people. You, and, and it's sincere and deep and there's, there's, they're not phony at all. And they don't make stuff up and, and they remember your name and they smile and they listen to you and they look you in the eye. And I really focused on that and, and really just try to, when I talk to a club, I'd say, you know, you got a great place here, but we can make it better. And as opposed to saying, well, this is just awful. And how could you guys live with this? And who are you to tell me what to do? And so, you know, I, I always felt one of my best strengths was that, even though I do have an ego, I was, I'm able to back it off and 
For instance, if I'm in a greens committee and somebody on the outside of that greens committee says, hey, what about if we did this? I have to recognize that that's a better idea than mine because a good idea is a good idea. It doesn't matter where it came from. And so it's, and if it's a bad idea to diplomatically tell them that we're going to do something else. And, um, so I think, I think, you know, I'm fortunate when I did start that golf was really turning, I think to an upgrade, you know, the band in world really helped people could see that there was this better golf courses out there, better thinking, better work through all the details. And fortunately I'm pretty observant on stuff like that and could see that, that you just can't build the things that were maybe getting built in the eighties and nineties with really more designed in the office and, um, you know, containment mound type golf courses that, you know, you just hand the plans and a guy on a dozer just builds mound after mound after mound. And so, um, I think I'm rambling here and getting off topic, but, um, I think I, mean, I can't even remember. You're the, talking about the time that you got oh, yeah. into the business in the Pacific Northwest, especially people were starting to understand what design build golf looked like. Correct. And that was probably helpful for you. And you were running kind of a, a design build operation or, yep. or, you know, you had some control over the build process from fairly earlier in, in your career, right. it sounds like. And and that is something that sets your courses and your work apart from a lot of other regional golf architects that I've that I've come to know over the years. Yeah. You know, every region kind of has its guy, right? Yeah. Uh, often it's an ASGCA guy and some of them are really good. Right. Others are a little bit cookie cutter and and the work isn't that compelling. But you know, what, what sets your work apart and has for years is that there's a little bit of craftsmanship to it. There's that design build element. And so yeah. I guess it was probably helpful for there to be some examples of that around. For sure. And then the other part of it that I'm curious about is the taste element, right? Good architects need to have good taste, need to like have seen really good golf courses and and understood what makes them good. Right. For you, what was a lot of that from your experience in Australia? You know, when you think about developing your taste, you know, when you look at a golf hole, like what makes it look good to you? What makes it feel like a good golf hole? Where do you think you got that from? Or is that just innate? Um, I think it's just probably a little bit of both. I think you know, again, at such an early age, I would always look at courses and like our family and, and buddies and teammates, when we would, we'd play a tournament somewhere, I would always ask, Hey, what's your favorite hole on that course? What don't you like about that course? What do you like about that course? What, what do you think of this hole? Is that crazy? Or is it a good hole? And so I sort of always had that interest in it. And even the really bad courses have some really good things on them. It might just be a little bump here or there next to a green or the way the green sits into a corner somewhere. And, and so I think, you know, you can learn a lot just looking at anything. And a lot of times you're learning what not to do. Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, the whole mounding thing and just the, you know, the over elevation of T's a lot of stuff like that the overplanting of trees just really hurts the site. And granted, I'm not like a lot of guys that have played, you know, 
8,000 courses or 2,000 courses around the world and all the top 100 and stuff. You know, I've played 20 or 30 of them. And, but I think I'm really observant towards our local areas. And, you know, one real advantage I think I have, or at least I call it my advantage. I, I don't know if it's an advantage over anybody else, but I feel like it's an advantage to the customer. Is like Portland Golf Club last year. It's like half an hour away. I probably went out there close to 100 days. And so a guy shapes a bunker and it's a little bit off. I can make him switch it before he's even out of that bunker, moving on to the next one. And I, and so we can really get the details down when you're there just pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. You know, I would leave for another project for a day or two and miss something, but just that day to day, uh, element is, is really important. Um, and so working local, you can kind of do that. And that's the, you know, I had no idea when I got into this business that the construction side would be so fun and rewarding and exciting, you know, um, just to watch it happen. Even, you know, I'm working at Oswego Lake Country Club right now, another Chandler Egan, and we're, you know, three quarters of the way through of a big bunker project, a lot of new tea work, a lot of surrounds of greens and stuff like that. And, you know, it's just fascinating to watch it come and, and to think it through and say, you know, this isn't working, let's do this. And, uh, and if you're there every day, you can, you can, you can dial that in. If you're there once every two weeks, you have to approve a lot of stuff. Otherwise the thing falls behind schedule and, and, oh, and if you change it, it gets off, off budget. You mm-hmm. know, you start spending, wasting money. You just have to and say so, good enough. Yeah. And, and so, it goes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it'd be great to say, hey, I built two courses in New Zealand and one in, you know, somewhere else and all that, but I got it pretty good. (laughs) You know, I'm pretty content. This episode is brought to you by Mizzen and Maine. So we're approaching the end of the year here, Q4. And if you're anything like me, you have a number of functions and events coming up where you'll need a good dress shirt. Mizzen and Main dress shirts are ideal for this kind of stuff. They're comfortable, breathable, easy to pack, machine washable, and they look really, really good. One of my go-to dress shirts is Mizzen and Main's Leeward button-down. This is the type of shirt you can wear to work, on the weekend, to parties, to the National Links Trust Symposium, and everywhere in between. They also make great gifts, either for yourself or a special someone. They're perfect for anyone who works, travels, plays golf, or just cares about looking and feeling great. So use promo code FRIEDEGG to get 25% off $130 or more at mizzenandmain.com. Check it out. All right, so let's talk about the uh, first big new build project of yours, at least that I became aware of and that is Bandon Crossings which is the local public course in Bandon, Oregon, not associated with the famous Bandon Dunes Golf Resort, but right. it is the course that all the caddies play that <laughs> that you know everybody who lives there loves this course, plays this course a lot. How did this uh, project come about? Like, what is there a connection to the resort that I'm not aware of that, you know, produced this golf course, or is it just unrelated? Uh, unrelated, but backtracking just a little bit. So, when I did start the business, I did have a little bit of a marketing concept in mind, and and that is 
through because of my dad and my brother being golf pros and myself being a golf pro, I knew all the golf pros in the Northwest or they knew my dad or my brother, or they certainly knew our name because dad was a very good player. My brother was a very good player it regionally. And so I knew through the golf pros that a lot of times the golf pros in that room of a board, of director or a greens committee, when they say, Hey, we want to remodel something. Does anybody know an architect? Well, nobody really knows architects in most in Oregon. There was only a, no, there wasn't a plethora of them. But everybody sort of knew that this guy left Columbia Edgewater in the golf, in the golf pro business. He left Columbia Edgewater, start a business on his own to do something he's never done. You know, they kind of thought I was crazy, but they remembered that. So going forward, all my early projects really came through golf pros in that section. Well, happens to be for the Bannon Crossing ones. One of my good friends, Mark Keating, worked at Shadow Hills and there, uh, some of his members, the Rex and Carla Smith, were going to develop a golf course because of his love of Bandon Dunes, and they wanted to talk to me. And so they sent me a, a packet from the American Society of Golf Course Architects to list all my pro- former projects and how many courses I'd build on the coast and all this experience. And the only thing I could answer was put my name and address in there. <laughs> and I couldn't say yes to any other question on this three or four page packet. So I just called Carla up and told her, I says, Hey, I would give my left leg to do this project, but I have zero experience. I told her exactly. I mean, I built some stuff, but I hadn't built a full course. And she said, well, that's okay. Just, put on there what you can. And I says, well, what, you know, what are you guys doing right now? Well, Rex will be home in an hour. And I says, well, I can be there in about an hour and a half. They were in Eugene. And so I literally grabbed my keys and got my car and met them that day. And they hired me that day. And with a few stipulations that I could, you know, I could get a routing for them and so on and so forth. But, um, yeah, it was just a shot in the dark, one phone call and there it happened. And most of them happen that way. It's just suddenly you get a phone call and it's like, Hey, we want to build a course and come and talk to us. And, you know, fortunately I haven't lost any of those. I get those projects. So what are some of the basics about that course for people who haven't heard of it or know about it? What's the course like? Well, it's, it's inland about a mile and a quarter or a mile and a half from the ocean. So it gets quite a bit warmer weather than actually the resort does. Cause it's right on the, it's right on the shoreline basically. Um, so that's, that's nice. It's a bit warmer, a little bit less wind. Um, it's kind of half, basically nine holes. The first three or four and the last four or five are kind of in pasture lands. And then the other holes are, um, kind of in the forest or this bottom land that divides the property. Um, there was old ancient sand dunes that we build on. So we were able to build it with on-site sand. We could kind of mine in those dunes a little bit and, and build our greens out of that sand. Um, had just a beautiful plethora of plant life on it from, from all these native pasture grasses to, it had a little bit of gorse on it, which is great at the resort. It's kind of a nice, it's kind of a maintenance sore, but we had manzanitas and, uh, rhododendrons and firs and pines and cedars and just tons of underbrush. So it was really, a it was visually, it was so fun to work on it because there was just so much of stuff and, mm. uh, kind of, uh, really nice piece of ground as far as the basic contours with the difficulty of going down through this bottom land where it drops down, you know, 50, 60 feet and dividing the course. But, uh, no, it was just a great project. I'm so thankful they, they hired me for that. Yeah. It turned out really good. Obviously. I mean, it's, uh, I think it's one of those things where, 
people can go to that town many times over the years, go to the resort over and over. And then finally, you know, on their fifth or sixth trip, somebody says, you really need to go out to Bandon Crossings. And they go out there and like, wow, this is a, a, a truly excellent golf course. And, um, and so it's kind of, kind of neat in that way where it's, it's almost like a, a hidden gem, except it's in one of the most famous and overexposed golf towns in the, in the country. When, when you were building it, I mean, were they building abandoned trails around the um, time that, that you were building crossings? We're, yeah. We were a year behind trails. Okay. They opened one year before us and, yeah. uh, I was able to go out to trails cause we used the Tony Russell, a local contractor that had built most of the abandoned stuff was right. ours. And so we would go out there and that's when I first met, uh, Bill Coor for the first time and, uh, able to walk some of those holes with him when they were making some modifications and stuff. But no, the resort was, they were very friendly with us. And like you mentioned earlier um, about the caddies have just been a huge deal for us. And now a lot of them go to bar run, which is about 90 minutes away. The Mm -hmm. course I just opened last year. And uh, they sort of have that same feeling. I have a little abandoned caddy fan base (laughs) without sounding cocky or anything, but they really support those clubs. And so I'm, I'm very thankful for them. I should, I should send them a bunch of beer or something. (laughs) I'm sure they would like that. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Yeah. The caddies do like to mention, uh, abandoned crossings to the, uh, to guests who are like, okay, so where do you play? Do you play out here a lot? Well, yeah, they get to play the resort courses a lot, but you know, they, they really, the abandoned crossings is kind of the, the spot where they have their yeah. matches and, and their series. And yeah, a lot of them are fun. really good players. And, yes. and so that's, that's kind of the vibe out there. Um, all right. So, uh, the next course of yours that I'm really, uh, keen to talk about is wine Valley. This is out in Walla Walla, Washington. Okay. Now Walla Walla is a neat little town. It's very remote for, for, you know, being the kind of size and significance of town that it is. I mean, it's not big, but there's a college there, Whitman college that, uh, that is well known and and well regarded about a four hour drive from Portland, slightly more than that from Seattle, though, not much more, you know, three hour drive or so from Spokane. So it's out there. How did this project come about? Why, <laughs> why did they decide to build this kind of golf course out in Walla Walla? Well, it, uh, again, started with a golf pro friend of mine, John Thronson, Thorsness, excuse me. John Thronson was a golf course architect, John Thorsness. He had this idea and he found a landowner out there that had the same idea. And same thing. They said, do you know an architect? And John says, well, I've played a lot of tournament golf with Dan. He's starting to make his way, uh, in the business and let's just have him come out. And so I did. And, um, I drove home after being, spending a night there and walking the property, which wasn't actually the property we built the course on, but I came home and did a whole bunch of drawings that very night and stayed up real late and made all these pretty drawings and went to the post office the next day and sent it to him. And basically they said, you're our guy (laughs) just based on, you know, one day on the site and making these pretty drawings, you know, being able to draw helps too, especially when you use color that cap that gets people's, uh, mind racing to the good. Yeah. We're, we're at your drafting table right now, actually. So uh, there's, (laughs) there's some of Dan Hickson's art, uh, sitting around here. (laughs) And so, um, that actually was before Bannon Crossings. 
that conversation happened and I hadn't okay. even talked to the people at Bannon Crossings. So we started to move forward. We actually switched to a different piece of land where we actually ended up building. And then uh, suddenly Bannon Crossings came in and it took a long time for the city of uh, Walla Walla to change their regulations because nobody had tried to build a golf course there since the 60s, I think. Yeah. And there's Walla Walla Country Club in town, but that Yeah, and then Vets back. Memorial. Yeah. yeah, the Country Club is in the 20s or 30s right. probably. Um, and so it took the city a while to figure out how they could approve it. And right. so eventually they did. And uh, um, yeah, and so that was, that was really great. The, so I sort of brokered a deal for Jim Poliska, who is the owner of Emerald Valley, um, that I'd known many years before that through amateur golf and kind of brought him into it. The reason I say I brokered a deal is that I, that's probably not even the right term. We had a development group based out of Denver that was going to help us raise money and, and put it together. And that kind of fell through. And so the project looked dead. And I talked to Jim, and he was interested in a second course. And so um, he jumped right in once he saw the land and the the deal, the price and everything. And so we went to work within probably six months of him seeing the site. And we built the thing uh, in 14 months from the first time we shovel hit the dirt. We were open in 14 months, mm -hmm. which helps because there's no trees on it. It was alfalfa field. Made it a lot quicker and easier. Right. And, and when you uh, say alfalfa field, I want people to envision the right thing. This is not a flat piece of land. No. This is a broad, rolling, pretty dramatic piece of land that has landforms that are smoother and larger than you would find in dune land. Yep. And so it's not dune land by any means, but it, it has some of that look. If you if a if a golfer shows up at this site they might be reminded of yeah. a, a dune type of landscape. Right. And so, you know, lots of those kind of native grasses and quite a bit of topographical movement across yeah. the site. Great soils, low soils, which were deposited there back in the, in the ice age when the, when the Missoula floods would break through millions of, a uh, million years ago, I forget the <laughs> something date. like that. <laughs> I wasn't around. Yeah. We aren't geologists, <laughs> but it, but it's it, you know you're talking low soils like a fine silty yes. kind of soil. It's not sand, but it's you right. know it's it's pretty good for a golf. And it was deep. Their well drillings. It was eighty feet deep before they hit anything other than lows. And so it was like playing in in just in a sand dune, except it was lows. Um, technically it's not the Palouse country. The Palouse country is a little bit north of the Snake River and in eastern Washington, but the characteristics are identical. It just doesn't fit in their geographic area. Um, really good. Um, Jim really wanted a top-notch course. He's a tournament player, still is today, wanted tournaments there. So we built a pretty pretty stout golf course. You know, not super, super hard, very playable for people that knock it along the ground. Um, but you know, some severe greens and the ability to play it really long and play tournaments, um, was really fun. He let, we brought in some first class shapers in, uh, in Kai Golby and Dan Proctor and, and, um, um, yeah. And, and, so, and if people don't know those names, yeah. I mean, if you're in golf architecture, you know, yeah. about Kai and Dan, Yeah. but Dan Proctor, great architect in his own right has teamed up with Dave Axland to build some of the best public courses in the right. country, including right. Wild Horse out in Nebraska. And Kai Golby has worked on 
numerous projects with any architect that you can name, yeah. including yeah. Tom Doak and, and all the firms yeah. that you would imagine. Dan Proctor has a long association with Corin Crenshaw. Yeah. So these are aces yeah. right, that you're bringing in. I assume yeah. part of the reason that they were available, you know, not that they wouldn't want to work on an exciting project like this, but it was around the financial crisis, yeah. right? And and so did their schedules open up a, a little bit around this yeah. time, basically? Yeah, you know, and it was funny because, you know, thinking about being a golf course architect and, you know, say in the mid-90s, it's like, yeah, America's building 300 golf courses a year. It's like, well, I can find that. I can get one of those, right? And, <laughs> you know, then a few years later, America's building 250. Then America's building 200. Then they're building 150. And by 06, is I think when we started on that, or 07, you know, America's closing 50 courses a year. Right. And building 10. And uh, so it was very fortunate timing. Um, that was, and that was the year it really tanked. But unfortunately, you know, fuel costs went up. It costs us quite a bit more to build it. But Jim Polisco owns service stations and he's in the fuel business. And so he didn't worry about that because okay. he was doing fine. Huh. And uh, it's probably too much information, but I said it <laughs> and here it is. And so, um, uh, but he just loved it. He and his father were involved at the time and we were, they came up all the time and, you know, he, he was very involved in everything. And, um, but it was really interesting, you know, working with guys that are much more experienced than me and I'm in charge. It was, you know, there was Kai and I, and he and I have talked about it. You know, there was a couple of times where, you know, I really had to check my ego because, you know, my plan was this, but I would come back after being away for three or four days and Kai built something a lot better. <laughs> and at first my natural instincts would say, why didn't you do what I said? But then, you know, I had to back off enough to say, God, that's way better than I thought of. And so it, it, I really learned a lot from those guys. Very inspiring. Um, you know, Kai was just awesome. Dan was awesome. One time I, we did a Jim and his father were in town and gave him an update schedule and yeah, we've got this done, this done it was right towards the end. And I said, yeah, I think the 18th T is ready to seed. And we go driving around after this meeting and Kai's just got it blown up with a big dozer. And, you know, I have to walk over there and say, what are you doing in front of them? And, <laughs> and his, his simple answer is that those T's just look like it was a chop architect built them. I'm building you something really cool. And so there was a lot of passion to buy it and stuff. And so, um, you know, in front of those guys, I might not have had that, even though deep down, I always had that passion, but you know, it, it even spurred it on more. I wanted to shape and I wanted to understand and get better, you know, even though that course ended up, you know, it's got a lot of, it's been in the top hundred. I think it's slightly out of it right now, but it's been in the down to the fifties or sixties and still is, you know, highly ranked and stuff. But I, I, even when we finished that, I thought I could do better and get a lot better. And I still hope to keep getting better by, you know, just opening up my mind different ways to, to recognize that moment when something has to change. And so that was great working with those guys. Yeah. And, and, and those are the, the kinds of builders who, uh, definitely have enough confidence in themselves to depart from the plan. And, and certainly that's part of what they were trained yep. to do, right? They're yep. basic. Both are, are coming out of the Pete die tree, even if they yep. didn't work 
with Pete Dye specifically. Right. That is, that's kind of the spirit they're bringing to a project. So it's not surprising to hear that, that Kai went rogue a couple of times. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, and it was, in, you know, when I saw him a few years after the course and stuff, I brought him a hat and he was like, gosh, I didn't think you'd even like me after that. And I was like, no, it was awesome. I can, <laughs> I can differentiate, you know, those moments. And, uh, and, and like I said, it was, uh, you know, I, I carry what a lot of that stuff that I learned there, you know, like for instance, we're building at Oswego Lake country club is I have plans. We have square footages and total work areas and all these things that'll control the budget. But what happens within those really has to happen in the field. And, you know, a bunker is best when you touch it at the very end, not when you just copy a drawing. And so, uh, and those guys really, really helped and, and opened up my eyes even more for that, even though that's kind of where I was going anyway. And so I learned a lot from them. So Wine Valley opened in 2009. Obviously at that point, the golf course construction business was slowing way down. Yeah. But over the past decade or so, you've had a couple of really interesting projects. I mean, one of the things about your work in the Pacific Northwest is that it's all sorts of different things. You're not just churning out 18 whole courses. Right. You, ha you have a, a real variety of projects and you've gotten to do some experimental and frankly weird <laughs> stuff. <laughs> a couple of those experiments happened way out in Eastern Oregon at Sylvie's Valley Ranch. You built not only a reversible golf course out there, but probably the craziest short course that <laughs> I've ever seen in my life and will probably ever see. <laughs> um, why don't we start with the reversible course? So how, how does that work for people who are unfamiliar with it? How does that specific reversible course at Sylvie's Valley Ranch work? Well, the easiest way to imagine it is just think of a big... 18 hole golf course that uses a lot of land. There's big nature areas between them and it's kind of low sagebrush and, and ponderosa pines between. And so imagine a, you know, a complete full 18 hole par 72 golf course, you know, 7,000 yards long, and then kind of forget about it and say, we're just going to build the opposite direction. And we're going to build another one right over the top of it. And in some cases you use a lot of the same features, a, a tee that might play in both directions, a green that you come into from two different directions. But because the ground is very diverse, there's lots of elevation change. Uh, I didn't want to just use only 18 green sites. There was better holes if I said, hey, even though there's a green on the first course over here, it doesn't really work coming the opposite direction as well. So, but there is a really great green site 80 yards away. And so this hole may have been a par five one time, this time, this next time around the opposite direction, it's a par four that's, you know, 450 or something. And so, um, it's hard to get a handle on to even explain, you know, <laughs> if somebody said, well, how many fairways you got? And it's like, hell, I don't know. They're all hooked together and there's right. 27 greens. So, of the 27, there's basically think of it this way. There's nine of the greens that are double. So there's 18 of the 36 holes. And then there's nine for the Hankins course. And then there's nine for the Craddock course that are individual greens. And so that wasn't a plan that just sort of worked out that way. It could have been seven. It could have been 11, mm. you know, different ones. It just yeah. on any I, given day, nine greens are not in use. Nine correct. single greens correct. are not in use. So, correct. And, and then nine are kind of shared yeah. between the courses. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think that 
if you had gone for a pure reversible course, quote unquote, where yeah. where every single green is in use every day, it would have been hard to do that out there, right? Because it is, it's a, it's not like St. Andrews, right? It's not like the loop in right. Michigan, the the reversible course that Tom Doak built, where the piece of land is pretty subtle yeah. and is at kind of a, a similar grade throughout the right. site. There's big movement yeah. on this site. It would have been tough to do a pure reversible course, I feel like, because there's some slopes that you can just play down one direction. Correct. And you're not going to be able to go back up. Right, exactly. And if you made, if the big drop-off par four tee shot for instance, number eight on the Hankins course, if you played up that hill, it would be an awful hole. And so, and in order to get up top again, we just took a different piece of land and build a par three and a par four to get basically reconnected. And I can honestly say that if you did have 18 hole pure reversible, just 18 greens and they all double up, it would not have been anywhere near the quality of golf that it is today. And, uh, I was just so thankful that the owner was just awesome in the sense that he was uh, just a very much a, not even a golfer, but a little bit part-time golfer, but innovative businessman, smart guy, and could see really quickly that building the reversible course, this is kind of a little bit of the background of how it came about. He wanted to build this eco-friendly resort and he could build two courses on the land of one plus a little bit more that really made a lot of sense in his mind instead of having, you know, two acre, 200 acres over here and 200 acres over there to have a 36 hole course. He knew location stuff that we wouldn't be, you know, we wouldn't have 150 players a day or anything like that. Sure. It's going to be a smaller, um, because of the location. And, uh, so, but he recognized very quickly that that idea made a lot of sense. And, um, yeah, I'm really proud of that work. It was, a it was about a seven year experience for me going over there. And I would, I would spend from the middle of April until close to the beginning of November uh, during our construction season building it. And it was really just myself and one or two shaper guys and then a couple of local kids and stuff. Wow. And so it was, uh, it was a lot of work. We did a lot of stuff, but you know, just a great, great experience from rebuilding dozers to trimming tree limbs and, making big burn piles at the end of the year to shaping greens and doing all the subtle stuff and growing it in and planting aspens. And it just, it's like 10 careers right there, you know, yeah. and I was sort of doing the job that say at wine Valley, there was like seven people and I did kind of that thing. And, and, uh, it really inspired me to work even harder. Just like the more I work, the more I, it meant to me. Yeah. And so I know I've never been afraid to work hard and, and kind of do extra work because it just means that much more to me. It's like my wife now says, are you going to be okay? You got a lot of work. It's like, no, I want more because it just means more. Right. You know? So maybe that's yeah. a workaholic, but I hope not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and part of, part of the reason that kind of effort was necessary is that I called Walla Walla remote. I mean, Sylvie's is remote remote yeah <laughs> you know yeah. it's it's way the hell out there you go to nowhere and, and then you go another hour <laughs> yeah exactly it, it's uh, you know once you get if you're going out there from uh portland or something you you get through the bend area you don't pass through the bend area literally on your way out there but you get through where central that oregon, is yeah. central oregon and you just keep going for a long long time and you don't see anybody or anything for ages. And so it's, it's beautiful. 
um, but very much frontier golf. And I like that they've kept it rustic out there that the, the cart paths, at least when I went out there were dirt and, oh, yeah. and it was, you know, it, it really felt like you were at the edge of the earth and, uh, the golf course is presented nice and firm and fast and pale. Yeah. Um, and it's a, uh, it's a really cool place. Now the, the other course that I mentioned, the short course McVeigh's gauntlet, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you look at that piece of land and it's impossible to put a golf course on it, right? It's yeah. too, it's way too severe. You've yeah. got, you've got these greens. I mean, it's like you made it up in a video game or something. <laughs> I don't even understand. Like, how did you yeah. build that course? Like, were you getting, were you getting heavy equipment up there and well, some of those green sites? We, we did somehow. So back to my very first trip to the property for Sylvie's with Scott Campbell, the owner, Dr. Campbell. We looked around and that is such a striking piece of land. He thought we could build the whole golf course up there. And then we weren't even talking reversible at this point. He just thought this could be an 18 hole course. And, and I told him very quickly, I said, you know, this is spectacular, but it's, you know, we're going to go a mile this direction and a mile that direction from right here. And this is just wait, you know, this is 60 acres or whatever it is. And, uh, and I said, it's spectacular. You could have a hole that goes out into that property, maybe a little par three and then play out of it. But I said, it would be great for a short course. And he filed that away. And, you know, as we started to finish the the big course and we built this, the other par three course, Egan's, uh, Chief Egan course, which is more of a traditional short par three right. course, lower, simpler ground. He says, well, what about, what about that one up there? And you know, I hadn't, I'd been up on the property many times being there that many years, you know, just hiking around and looking around. And so I drew up a plan of, you know, something, a five hole course or something. And he came back a week or two later and we walked it and he says, well, you know, why couldn't we just make it a little more and ended up, ended up with seven holes with, there's places that we could connect and make even more spectacular holes. I mean, not just more holes, but more spectacular and, uh, and turn it into nine or 12 or whatever, and just keep doing it from ridge top to ridge top anyway. So, uh, he approved a plan and, uh, I tried to figure out how to do it. And we just made these very small roads where I could get a dozer up in there and shape them myself. And then, but I still had to get a, uh, I still needed a dump truck to get sand into the greens. And so we brought these big dump trucks full of sand up there, but you know, kept the pathways pretty small and, and trying not to ruin too much of the natural vegetation. There was a few roads up there that we were able to piggyback off of. And, uh, you know, it took me a couple months to build it. And then we had an irrigation company come in there and just, you know, water the greens and the teas and wow. the teas are pretty much connected to the former, the green before. And so, yeah, it was really fun. You yeah. Know. You make it sound so simple, um, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it has to be, I took some, I got some pretty good pictures of it when I was up there and, and I'll, I'll post, I've posted those a couple of times and people always kind of lose their minds when yeah. uh, they see where some of these golf holes are, but really it is, you know, like little peaks yeah. that greens are just kind of set on and there's nothing around it except for wilderness yeah. and you're just kind of hopscotching <laughs> from one to the other. Um, so that's a, it's a, it's a pretty cool place. Um, all right. So your, your latest course opening is bar run, 
which is in Roseburg, Oregon, kind of in Southern Oregon, South of Eugene, yeah, but not far from where you would kind of enter the mountains to go out to Bandon Dunes. Um, you know, I played the course earlier this summer going around, looking at some of the shaping. I could tell that you were experimenting with some stuff out there. You had a piece of land that didn't necessarily have like significant natural features on it to work with. And so some of this shaping that you did, the mounding, the, the, the shapes around the greens, all that kind of stuff was really interesting looking. I was wondering where you got your ideas for that stuff or what the thinking behind it was. <clears throat> well, it took a while to formulate what it was going to look like, because like you said, it, it was a sand and gravel quarry and it was, it has these massive rectangular ponds on it and other areas that they had mined before and just sort of abandoned and let brush and trees take over. And we really didn't know what we had until, um, really until I jumped on a big tractor with a, with a big brush hog behind it and started cutting through, you know, 15 foot tall blackberries and over, you know, kind of willow shoots and all this stuff to be before we could really see the land and the, the routing changed forever until right till not till the end, but you know, um, we'd built quite a bit of it before we knew where the next holes were going to go because we were having to fill ponds in and they would get fill. They were a fill site as well. Um, and so they would get, they would excavate these ponds to get the sand and gravel that they would produce concrete and, and sell the stone and stuff and then have to fill it in with, you know, old concrete and, and clean dirt and fill and stuff. And so it was, there was a lot of, well, we need to fill this pond. And it's like, well, what do you think? Like 10 feet? And it's no like 110 feet, <laughs> and uh, which takes a while to do all that. And so the sharp edges on the ponds, and there was a lot of, between a lot of the ponds were dikes that had really steep edges. And um, and the site, even though the bigger site is real large, the, the golf area is not all that huge because the water takes up so much of it. And there was kind of these natural low areas that we sort of had to stay out of. And, uh, so the, the design style kind of emerged, um, you know, I was looking at a lot of courses and a lot of things to try to find the right inspiration and, uh, loosely, um, Norman Macbeth's course, Wilshire in LA had the burn, uh, the, the not Barrancas, what do they call them there? The kind of the swales next to the green and stuff for, it's mm -hmm. part of the wash system of greater okay. los angeles city yeah city I, los I thought angeles. they called them barrancas yeah maybe it is barranca yeah. yeah yeah and so or berms yeah i, I, I mean i don't know yeah. uh, it's uh, really uh, just ditches right that are just that are exactly. playable and right. occasionally when it floods water rips through them and and we didn't build anything that extreme but we use that you know as we talked earlier today the 18th green has a swale that cuts through it and out in front of it and that's loosely just from i've played wilshire and watch the LPGA event there every year just to kind of see it. And, uh, um, you know, so that was part of the inspiration, but a lot of times we just would push dirt in a funny way. And, you know, we made these peaks instead of mounds to kind of separate visually between holes, even though they're not continuous, we would push this dirt up as straight as we could make it with a dozer. And then we hydroceded it with fescue and just, you know, one's the, this is the Andes and, and this is the Himalayas. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, it just kind of evolved 
you know, the, the overall theme is that it's a industrial area. We weren't trying to make a country club or anything really smooth. We just wanted to have it kind of quirky to fit along with these sharp edges of things. And then of course we, I made the crazy decision to, to copy the pit from North Barrick with a, yes, rather than a rock wall that North Barrick, you know, one of my favorite holes in the world, if not the famous, maybe of something that I didn't do, um, decided to copy that. And that was almost on a whim. The hole just kind of reminded me of it, but it needed the wall. And so we build this 16 inch average, 16 inch high concrete wall that, kind of diagonals in front of this green, very similar, not an exact copy of the pit, but, uh, it's really funny when people play it, they come in and say, what the hell is the concrete wall in front of it? And it's, then they tell the story and the people often, it's not uncommon. They go, Oh, I just love it. It's just the greatest thing, especially that story. That's just so cool. Right. And it, it creates this just like North Barrick or well, not just like it, but a certain intimacy when you get behind that wall and you're down by in that pit of the green, it just really feels it's fun and playful. And that's what, to me, that's what golf is. It should be, you know, it should bring a smile to your face. That, that hole is kind of humorous to me. I don't know if other people feel it that way, but it's like, why not? Who cares if there's a, you know, if you it is a funny hole. Yeah. yeah. And there's uh, there's not enough, you know, serious golf architecture out there that's willing to be yeah. willing to be humorous. Um, and there is a connection to the site, you know, that, that yep. concrete wall that you built, it is, it's like, like the cart paths at, at Bart Run are made out of concrete basically from yep. the, uh, from the site that yeah. the course was built on. And so there's some of that history kind of preserved in, in the design of the golf course. So that's, that's brand yeah. new, actually opened just last year yeah. and, and is just getting going and, and they're ramping up that whole area. They have an RV uh, resort sort of. And when I was there, they were building a lazy river, they yeah. told me. And so they've got a whole deal going there at Roseburg. It's kind of unique. And it's, you know, as far as I can tell, you know, I can't remember the last time that a relatively affordable public course was built in the Pacific Northwest. A lot of great golf courses have been built, but most of them have been of this high dollar resort yeah. variety. Yeah. Probably Bandon crossings was last. Yeah, maybe exactly. Um, and so it's a significant event, I think for golf in this area that this course has been built and you can go play it for around 80 or $90. I believe is yeah. the, is the green fee right now. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty cool. All right. So what, what's the, uh, what are some projects that you have coming up or, or going that <clears throat> you can talk about and that, and that you're excited about? I got a lot of maybes. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm doing, kind of... uh, gosh, I think I have five or six new long range plans that I'm working on at, at various stages of, of just going to the site. That would be Billingham golf and country club up in Billingham, Washington, Glendale. I'm about to present uh, a bigger plan to them. We'll see what happens with that. Uh, North Shore is a public course in Tacoma, much like you described, a affordable golf course. Um, I think they're um, potentially going to, we're going to rebuild the whole thing. It's 65 years old. Uh, no, a little less than that. 55 years old and still original irrigation and it really needs to be upgraded. Um, uh, the golf course at Birch Creek, which was formerly Pendleton Country Club, I just started a long range plan with them. 
Um, I do have a couple of new courses that I'm talking to people, but they're definitely not pub for public knowledge. I don't want people to know until I have them <laughs> just to keep people away. Uh, but I think those, I think one of them's getting real close to being possible. And I don't know, my board over there is, yeah, I've got a board. I was, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's the, it's probably it's not right updated. in my eyeline. Yeah. yeah. I see, uh, I see a few, a few names on there. I'm not going to read it out loud, no. but. Uh, basically you're, uh, you're busy yeah. <laughs> right yeah. now. Uh, things are picking up for you as they are for a lot of golf architects. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's, a, it's honestly pretty, pretty yeah. exciting times. Y even though costs are rising, it seems like people are still forging ahead with some yeah. golf course projects yeah. here and there. I'm working on a little course in Washougal, which is just east of Vancouver, which is really part of almost part of Portland. It's just across the Columbia river in Washington, a bunker project to a golf course that was, built in 34, the front nine, the backside was in the sixties and they've never really done anything other than they put in a new irrigation system about 20 years ago. And we're, we're redoing all their bunkers and making some surround changes around their greens and stuff and uh, fixing one green that's too steep. And, um, it's really a big project for them. It's not on the scale of some of these other ones I'm doing, but it means just as much to them. And so I want to give them just as I want to give them more for their money almost because this is a really big project for them. And it's really exciting to we're about a month into it. And we've we've completed the bunkers on the back nine and uh, I get out there roughly every other day during the week. And it's really fun to see them see their golf course kind of open up with tree removal and and this bunker work. And so um yeah, I'm in a unique spot now where I have, you know, two projects under construction and just finished two other ones earlier this year and a whole bunch coming and just starting to dream about new courses, you know, new projects and stuff. So you can kind of see, you know, from day one to, you know, the munis grassed in and, and growing in, getting ready to open. So I kind of have a little bit of everything going now. So I'm very lucky. <laughs> This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast was produced by Matt Rucius. Thank you, Matt. If you'd like to do us a solid, leave us a rating and review in the Apple Podcasts area where you do ratings and reviews. Can you tell I don't use Apple Podcasts? I use Pocket Casts. I think it's a lot better. But you know what? The ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts really help us out. So if you happen to be there, then tell people how much you love the fried egg golf podcast. <laughs> okay. I think that's, that's pretty much it. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back again soon.